So good evening, everyone. We would like to invite you to help us create an altar in the back on the chest of drawers there, around the statue of Kuan Yin, the compassionate one. And on this altar, you can place pictures of your loved ones. It's a blessing altar, really so that we can, we can share the blessings. Uh, you can write a note to someone, or even just the name, just putting the, someone's name on the altar uh, can evoke for you that person. If you find something outside at Spirit Rock, something that you cherish something that arouses appreciation or delight. If it's not too big or wet, you're free to uh, put it back there in, on the altar. So, in the next few days, please help us create a, a, an altar of blessings. So, um, this is a little echoey, isn't it? Maybe this will be better. Better? Yeah, much better. So today Joanna was talking about gratitude as an antidote to consumerism and consumption and feeling like you don't have enough. And we are uh, definitely in that phase Excuse me. of... Uh, kind of bumping up against the limits of what the planet can sustain if all of us keep consuming and having everything we want. Um, if you remember, back in the 70s, we had a little incident. We called it the energy crisis. Some of you may remember that. Uh, I remember you, you, couldn't, you could only get gas... Every other day, you could only buy gas every other day, depending on whether your license plate ended in an odd or an even number. I was always happy to say that I was odd. <laughs> but uh, I remember uh, Gerald Ford announcing proudly that some teenager in some town in Indiana had given up his stereo to save energy. It was one of those speeches where he was talking about. Anyway, uh, in response, there was an um, environmental movement called Voluntary Simplicity. But uh, unfortunately, not enough people volunteered. So now, I think what, what's going to be required is compulsory simplicity. And that you could call that the recession. 
a lot of us are feeling pain over the recession, I know, and it's uh, not easy. But there's also a lot of hope in the fact that uh, we are actually uh, compelled to cut back our consumption. Anyway, all that is a preface to uh, a little piece that I wrote with a friend of mine on the radio back in 1973, and I'd like to read it to you. It's an advertisement. Are you worried about the energy crisis? Disgusted with high utility bills? Fed up with being an energy victim? Then take control of your life today and make your home energy self-sufficient with U.S. Adams Home Nuclear Reactor. (laughs) Small enough to fit into your abandoned fallout shelter, yet powerful enough to power your major home appliances, including your washer, dryer, stove, refrigerator, freezer, microwave, waffle iron, toaster, coffee maker, mixer, blender, food processor, crock pot, electric wok, electric knife, knife sharpener, can opener, popcorn popper, cheese grater, meat slicer, dishwasher, garbage disposal, Trash compactor, electric broom, vacuum cleaner, water heater, hot tub, sauna, water pick, electric toothbrush, alarm clock, AM, FM, radio, tape deck, turntable, amplifier, color television, VCR, electric lights, and your automatic garage door opener. (laughs) Not to mention Dad's electric typewriter, skill saw, table saw, chainsaw, edge and hedge trimmer, and Mom's sewing machine, steam iron, curling iron, hair dryer. And your son's electric guitar amp, preamp, echoplex, wah-wah pedal, and your daughter's electric disco party dress. (laughs) Your home nuclear reactor comes fully equipped with a lightweight plastic containment vessel and easy-to-follow emergency instructions in case of a mini meltdown. If you order today, you'll receive free directions on how to assemble a home-sized atom bomb out of your leftover nuclear wastes, enabling you to become a dominant military power in your very own neighborhood. (laughs) Join the millions who will soon go nuclear with U.S. Adams' home nuclear reactor. So, um, it's funny reading that list because you realize how many of those you actually do own. All of that powered by electricity. All of that requiring that we alter the environment in some way to get that electricity That's in. This was before computers. This was before computers. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the electronic gadgets are just, uh, they proliferated. They, I think they're, they, they have their own, they're, they're taking over. I think they have their own conspiracy and <laughs> meetings and, So, nuclear energy, and that is the subject tonight, it seems. Well, in a way. In a way, in yes. A way. yes. The human heart we and... have this. Um, I'm going to uh, share the Elm Dance with you.
So uh, we're going to uh, be learning and dancing together the elm dance. And uh, I'm going to proceed it with a story that explains why we're doing it and why this, what this dance has come to represent. And uh, so there's a story to that. When we're in position, I think we'll be a double or triple circle in the middle of the room, and the music goes on, you will hear a a woman singing to guitar and flute, and she is singing in Latvian. She was a beloved, or she's still around, um, very popular singer with a group called Thunder in Riga, in the mid-80s, when uh, the Baltic states were still under Soviet occupation and rule. And this song, which she had written, uh, seems to be about trees, apple, oak. But in hidden language, it is also a call to a rise up uh, to resistance against Soviet occupation. You have to be careful on how you say things. Well, uh, now the story is that she created this dance, and then a woman in Germany, Anastasia Gang, the woman who created the dance, whose voice you'll hear, is Yeva, um, Yeva Akuturera. And uh, then a woman who was uh, a creator of circle dances and a Bach flower remedy person. And she often created circle dances in connection with the healing properties of a plant. And when she heard this song, she created a dance for it. And she associated its healing powers with those of the elm tree. Even though the elm itself is not mentioned among the trees in in the words of the song. And so it became, in Germany, das Ulmentanz, the elm dance. And uh, Anastasia, who created it, she all her circle dances and the movements, they're quite... Uh, simple and, and with great uh, depth and, and flow to them, or simplicity. And um, she associated this with intention, that doing the movements of this dance together strengthens our intention, that is, our capacity to follow through on the choices our heart minds have made. Well, now comes, I enter the picture, a, a friend of mine, Hannah Laura in Germany from Hamburg. She uh, taught me when I was, one of the times I was over there uh, doing the work that reconnects. This was back in the early, mid-80s. And there were several of these dances, but I particularly liked the elm dance. Now, uh, a couple of years later, uh, it was uh, 1986, 
Do you remember what happened on April 26 of 1986? Anybody remember? Yeah. The Chernobyl fourth reactor exploded and there was, it was the uh, biggest known uh, nuclear disaster at that point. And uh, my husband, Fran, uh, did a lot of work those years in the 80s, 90s, and the last decade, too, with environmentalists in the Soviet Union and in the post-ex-Soviet Union. And uh, Chernobyl was just a huge thing for the Soviet Empire. It really is... That was the event that pulled the USSR apart uh, because of uh, resistance in the other republics to how the Russians, Moscow, was handling it and because of the uh, absolutely colossal economic dislocation it caused. So um, at one point... Fran and I went over together to uh, go to a trial of the, a people's trial of the Chernobyl, about Chernobyl, where the people came together to hold, see who they hold accountable for this absolutely colossal tragedy. And uh, then we, when we saw the effect on the people, um, we this huge collective trauma, uh, we decided to go back and with a team of um, Russians and Ukrainians to do a series of workshops of this work uh, in the areas contaminated by Chernobyl. So we did that. This was by now six years after the disaster in 1992. And um, because I was the only one on the uh, team that didn't speak Russian, and I was also in charge of the workshops, but I, I wanted to be able to do something that with the people we would be with that didn't involve translation. I had excellent translation uh, from English to Russian or Belarusian or Ukrainian to and back in English, that was fine. But I wanted to do something that would be unmediated by words. And so I picked up some of the dances of Anastasia that I had learned from Hanalora. And uh, this was such a good idea, it turned out, because uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that the people in the towns we went to were so moved to be doing circle dance again. Their own, in this area of Far Eastern Europe and under Russia, Ukraine, Belarusia, this is an area that had uh, its folk dances. But they had been more than died out, stamped out under Stalin. So for them to be doing these dances, 
dancers even like that together uh, was a big deal, and they took it quite seriously. And um, they even they they took it seriously to come to a workshop. They'd get dressed up and come. And uh, we had and the other uh, what was the other thing that was why they liked it? Oh, why it was such a good idea is that. Uh, in that culture, it's very, it, Fran had found it, Fran's my husband, with the other work and meetings. It was so hard to get people to come on time. But not when we started with the, uh, these dances. They would show up and do it first thing and stay and insist on doing it at the end. And so that was... Uh... Now, we had a very good title, we thought, for our workshops. Uh, we wouldn't, didn't say despair and empowerment work or the work that reconnects. We called it building a strong post-Chernobyl culture. It had a good like, Soviet ring to it. <laughs> and uh, so it was fine. And all the, these workshops as we went from town to town Workshops, they would last two or three days, sometimes one day, sometimes three. But what happened at the last town was what, why we are doing the elm dance here. The last town we had heard about from one of our team members, a psychologist, Harash, who had flown on the day we heard of the disaster. He flew to the uh, control room in Chernobyl. He was just a, a heart as big as all outdoors. And the plight of the people caught by this nuclear disaster touched him deeply. And then he uh, found himself going to this particular town, and its name is Novozipkov. You're gonna, I'm going to have you try to say it. Novozipkov. Novozipkov. Yeah. And that is the largest town... Uh, that's, uh, or it's the most contaminated town, city of its size that is still inhabited. And the reason why it wasn't immediately evacuated was the manner of its contamination. And we learned, uh, and interestingly enough, since Fukushima, that has been publicly uh, mentioned by. Uh, Russian scientists, um, the winds shifted. They'd blown up first to Scandinavia where the alarms were sent off. That's how we learned about it in the West, alarms in Sweden. And then the winds blew it due west over uh, Hungary and Czechoslovakia and southern Germany, and then it swirled around up to England and Scotland, where still contamination there. And then the wind swish shifted again and blew uh, due east-northeast toward Moscow, that heavily populated seat of government area. And then at that point, very quickly, the decision was taken at the highest levels to uh, save the Moscow area by seeding the clouds before they reached there with the radioactivity. And uh, so 
uh, there were heavy rains fell on this area. It's called Bryansk. It's in Russia and it's just 100 miles uh, from Chernobyl, very near the border. And, uh, and the people weren't told. And that's why there weren't programs to relocate them. But the people found out. And that, as Harash would say, uh, that has doubled or compounded their suffering. Because they not only are suffering from uh, this incredible uh, contamination, uh, radioactivity in the soil and in the plants and in their bodies, but uh, there was... uh, done by their own government or they weren't, there was no program about it. They were studied, but they felt just like guinea pigs. So, um, but by the time we got there, I, our beautiful title had changed. And we saw announcements and it said, this is a, a workshop on uh, building, creating harmonious family relationships. <laughs> And I said, what is this? <laughs> We've come here about Chernobyl. And Harish said, Joanna Coolett, they know it's about Chernobyl. But this is Chernobyl to them, the fact that their families are falling apart, their mar- marriages are rotten, their children don't think they'll live, they're in rebellion. It's, uh, so that's in their face right now. That's Chernobyl. And... <clears throat> So I found that once they uh, started, once we began the workshop, uh, that they di- didn't even want to say the name of, uh, they call it Chernobyl, they would refer to it as the event. Well, since the event or before the event, there were about a little over 50, about the size of this gathering here. And uh, in a in a special education school in the gymnasium in one big circle. Well, before we started, um, we went as usual to call on the mayor and to uh, explain what we were doing. And it's always hard to find a way to talk about this work. And uh, but we keep trying. And um, so the mayor said. Uh, oh, how nice of you to come and do psychological rehabilitation on my people. And I just bristled, or I didn't bristle, my heart sank, because it's a t- terrible term that they were using in Russia um, that um, people needed psychological rehabilitation as though there was something wrong with the people. And... Um, at least they were admitting that something had happened. So I couldn't let that go. And um, I said, Mr. Mayor, we don't presume to imagine that we can remove any of the suffering from your people. That would be presumptuous in the extreme. But what we can do is look together at how to handle massive collective trauma. And it seems 
I was just winging it. I'd never even thought this before, but it's because you have to always stick your neck out and you'll find interesting thoughts. <laughs> so I said, it seems to me there are two ways that you can respond to uh, massive collective trauma. And one is that you can let it bond you more tightly in trust and solidarity with each other. And the a united uh, bonding to deal with this shared plight. And the other way is to let it uh, turn you against each other in feuding and divisiveness. Well, at that, his whole manner changed. And he just put his hands he's on the table we were sitting around and said oh you know there's not a day that somebody doesn't come into this office ready to explode in anger and usually does what can I do to help you so I've been remembering that recently and something that I was writing about Fukushima thinking about the dangers that we're facing there and you know you can feel there's a, where's the dividing line you know there's iodine 131 in berkeley you know where, where it's this is a great common plight we're all facing and uh, that we can choose to have it separate us or unite us At any rate um And then he explained to us that uh, there was good news because uh, President Yeltsin had been there and visited and assigned that Novozipkov will live and that he was going to uh, see that trainloads of cement would get brought in and to build cement block apartment houses, more of them, to get people off the ground and bulldoze the little wooden homes with those carved windows and doors. They're so so beautiful, like something out of a Russian fairy tale. They were being destroyed and putting people in these apartment houses. Uh, And um, because he said the wood holds the radioactivity... Actually, uh, Fran and I were housed with a family in a fourth-floor walk-up in such a cement block. And um, it was a crowded apartment, and we were very lovely people. And But it was, the refreshing thing about it, with a whole wall was a woodland scene, like a, a one sheet of... A wallpaper that's of one scene. And it was a woodland scene with birch trees and the sun dappling through the leaves to a grassy glade. And I said to the uh, our host's father, who was the superintendent of schools, Vladimir Ilyich, and I said, this is so refreshing, this. And he said, this is our forest now. This is what we have for a forest because, you see, and this may be the saddest thing for us, 
we cannot go into our forest because they're off limits. You see, the trees hold the radioactivity. And he said, that's so sad for us because we're people of the forest. Our ancestors came from the forest. Our songs and legends come from the forest. Under the Nazi occupation, our partisans hid and fought from the forest. During the hardest times under Stalin, we would go mushrooming and picnicking and walking in the forest. And all of that is closed to us now because of the trees are dangerous to us. And I said, well, Vladimir Ilyich, when will you be able to return to the forest, do you think? And he said, oh, not in my lifetime, and nor in his either, gesturing to his 10-year-old grandson. So that was uh, heavy in my mind when uh, I was with the people of Novozipkov, the people who didn't want to say the name Chernobyl, the people who wanted, loved doing the processes we did, but we shaped everything to be about remembering our families and remembering our youth. And Well, we finally did get around to, to uh, talking about the event itself. And the story about that is on my website and in a couple of my books, in my memoir, Widening Circles, and on my website in the Nuclear Guardianship page. I, they kept coming, and one of the dances I brought, what they loved was the elm dance. They didn't like the other one. So that's what they wanted. And as you'll see, as, as you dance, you lift your arms together and kind of sway like branches of a tree. And, and I imagine that this was like they were thinking of their forests as they did this because they loved this dance so much. I, I knew that part of their suffering was that they felt, here it was only six years after the disaster, that they felt forgotten by the outside world. You know, there was the spotlight of global attention on them for a while, on Chernobyl. You can see even now Fukushima's on back pages. There's so much happening. How do you sustain interest in tragedies on the other side of the world? And I wanted to speak to their feeling of being forgotten. So on the last day, near the end, I said, um, you know, from here, I am going to go to a world uranium hearing. It's in Salzburg in Austria. I'm coming, going right straight to that. And there, there are people coming from all around the world. uranium miners from Namibia and Navajo lands in Saskatchewan and downwinders in Utah and Nevada and Marshall Islands and uh, people from every, because every stage of the fuel cycle uh, emanates contamination and the waste dumps. So I said, they're coming to testify. And they're going to tell their stories. 
And it's going to be so good because people will see that you can use even suffering, that any kind of suffering, you can use that to bond with others around the world. You can use that to understand the kind of dangers that we have created with our technologies and our delusions and uh, that we are, uh, and you know what? You're not, I am going to take you there with me in my words because I'm going to speak there and I'm going to tell your story. And then people will know because you see there's a whole network around this world of people who are going to use this colossal mistake we've made, the suffering we've caused with nuclear power and weapons to help us wake up to the kind of world we want and how we can make it. I'm going to tell your story. Then I got carried away, you know. I do that sometimes. And so I said, and not only will I do tell your story and in um, Salzburg, I'll tell it wherever I go. So, um, see, I'm making good on that promise now. And that's, wow, let's see. That's 19 years. It's a good thing I keep alive. <laughs> um, so, uh, now you say, what does this have to do with the Elm Dance? This is what it has to do. When I... Um, so I did t- talk about Novosibkov at, at um, the World Uranium Hearing. But then when I got home and was doing workshops and classes, I found that the only way I could have the heart or gumption to tell their story of Novosibkov was attaching it to the dance. And so I would say to people, now I'm going to teach you a dance. And then, see, and then I tell the story of the dance. Instead of saying, come sit down, I've got a real depressing story to tell you. (laughs) Now, I could not have imagined in a thousand years what would happen with the dance itself. It's as if it had its own magical momentum. Because as people danced it, they loved it, and they began to take it out. And we made, I had just a cassette to begin with, copies and copies of copies of copies of copies of a cassette, and it was began to spread all over. People doing it in classrooms and in, even in police armories and on beach parties and wherever, churches and uh And it became a way for people to know, as activists, that though they may seem few in a given neighborhood, in a given locality, you don't think you're very many. You feel so often outnumbered, don't you? Yes? Uh, but so it's important to know, have a way of knowing that we are many around the world. 
a way of feeling a connection with people who are uh, out of sight, even thousands of miles away. And uh, so I could never have imagined that it would uh, play this function. And it began being used spontaneously. I mean, most recently, in many places since Fukushima. Uh, downtown San Francisco, downtown Oakland, and in many places uh, uh, in Germany, the people were writing me about doing it there. And there had been a tremendous response to Fukushima um, in Germany. So they just virtually closed down their nuclear program. And uh, it's nice to tell you that, that uh, there's an environmental organization uh, that we've been in touch with in Bryansk. That's the area where Novozipkov is. And people who danced the Elm Dance, for, there was a period of years where we were collecting donations and sending them over so that the people who live there could have uh, handheld Geiger counters, radiation monitors. And um, the uh, sense of connectedness and bonding grew. And now I just heard uh, a few days ago that uh, this same uh, organization of activists there are, uh, they had written a book, we'd raised money with the Elm Dance to publish the book called Living with Radiation. And so now they're having it translated into Japanese for the people in Japan and the people around Fukushima. And so that there's a movement that of the those around Chernobyl that we have a uh, gift to give from uh, and again it's a gift that of some uh, capacity born out of your own suffering the um, I just will mention that uh, some of the most moving uh, examples or stories of the Elm Dance were uh, seeing it used in actions, uh, seeing it used in uh, Brussels at a uh, rally against uh, a NATO campaign, and the police had their hoses out. And the uh, I wasn't there, but they just the activists just began dancing the Elm Dance. I saw it in Australia where they use the Elm Dance not only in actions. Uh, it's such a nice alternative to shrieking imprecations and everything on, on by loudspeakers just to stop and dance and um, that they could stop a bulldozer in forest actions. They said to me, and I saw the footage, they filmed it, and they said, you know, the police don't arrest us when we're dancing. They arrest us when we stop. <laughs> but that's not why we do it. We do the Elm Dance in order to remember our connections and to remember why we're protesting 
and that it's part of this, that we are many around the world who love and want to act for and protect uh, our planet. So that's a lot of talking, and you've been so patient. I think it's time we get up and dance, don't you? We're going to do the dance, and then I will have a sitting. We'll bring the mats back.